hakika wema nazo fadhili hakika wema nazo Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week, I get to sit down with a living composer and talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. Join me and take a peek inside the mind of a composer. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Andrew Maxfield. Andrew graduated from Brigham Young University as valedictorian of his class and later pursued advanced studies in counterpoint and harmony at the EMEA Nadia Bollinger Institute in Paris, France, graduate studies in composition at Boston Conservatory at Berkeley, and doctoral studies at the University of Bristol in the UK. His works have been performed by ensembles such as the Jeswaldo Six, USC Thornton Chamber Singers, Utah Philharmonic, Choral Arts Initiative, and many others. Andrew is a recent winner of the King Singers New Music Prize. Andrew Maxfield, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So this is the first time that you and I have actually talked in person. We first connected back in August of 2021 as I was getting ready to launch my Movable Snippet segment, and you were the first to respond for my, uh, to my call for songs, and your piece The Door was featured as the very first snippet. So it's very nice to finally put a face with the name and the music. Well, thanks for having me. That was I remember seeing the the call and I guess I had the 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 dumb luck of responding quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so currently you're living in Provo, Utah, correct? Yep. And did you grow up in the area? Um I grew up in Salt Lake City about an okay, hour so just north here. Okay. Yep. And have spent Oh, I don't know, slightly more than half of the last 20 years living other places. But, you know, there's there's sort of a magnetic pullback towards family at <laughs> certain points in life. So did you have a musical family growing up? Uh, did Were you all making music together? Oh, yeah, that's how it all started. My dad is a, um, a gifted singer uh, and a real passionate supporter of the arts. And uh, he did a lot of uh, musical theater and choral singing. And my mom is a flute teacher. And my brother, just younger than me, was a violinist. My sister was a flutist. And our caboose kid brother is a cello player. And you put all that together and it was just, you know, music. Did you have a family band or anything like the Maxfield musicians or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, not really a family band, but my, my, my brother Stuart and I played in all sorts of different incarnations of rock and roll bands uh, all growing up. So what did you start on? Uh, were you doing piano or or what did you do first? I started with piano lessons. I mean, the story that my mom tells is that somewhere along the way, she took me to an orchestral concert, something uh, one of these concerts for young audiences. And I came out of the concert saying, I want to be the guy with the stick, <laughs> the, the conductor. And um, I don't know what you do for a kid who wants to be the guy with a stick, but what she does is, is uh, piano lessons. That's the practical thing, right? That's right. And so I, I wanted to I wanted to be the 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 guy with the stick, and I got piano lessons and started that when I was five. You know the way that kids do, and just uh, I guess I just didn't quit. <laughs> Very nice. So were you in any school ensembles, uh, choir or band or anything like that? 
Yeah, I, uh, uh, I, you know, when I was really a little kid in elementary school and stuff, I was a good enough pianist that I accompanied the school plays <laughs> uh-huh. and then sang in all the, the choirs. And then in high school, I was the uh, president of our school acapella choir and a member of the, the Madrigals, which was our uh, more selective um, chamber choir. Sure. And started writing. Actually, I, I started writing because I didn't know any better. I just thought that if you could just write music. And so I did. And uh, God bless Anne Applegate, the, the, the choir teacher at East High School in the late 90s, because I said that I wanted to write music for the choir. And she said, okay. And so <laughs> she, so she, she gave me rehearsal time. I look, I look back at this and realize how fortunate I was. But uh, Mrs. Applegate dedicated rehearsal time for my pieces, some of which we just recorded for fun. And then she came around and asked me to write a piece for the choir that was performed at our at our graduation. Wow, that was amazing. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> that is fantastic. So outside of choir and uh, other stuff, what kind of music were you listening to? Well, you know, I was a Suzuki kid, so you you can't avoid <laughs> some of the regulars, the humoresque and yeah. twinkle, twinkle and all that, uh, you know, saccharine stuff. Uh, but from the time I was really little, I think it had to do with my parents being who they were. My dad would be playing his um, his records, which were either classic rock which I think at that point was just called rock, you know, it was uh, <laughs> Kansas and Billy Joel and James Taylor and whatever, uh, earth, wind and fire, definitely. Uh-huh. But he also introduced me to uh, vocal music and he had King Singer's records back before they kind of had their pop phase. He had records of them singing French chanson and Italian madrigals. And I would, I remember just lying on the floor listening to all of that. And then my mom would have her Joni Mitchell records and her uh, Vivaldi flute concerti. And somehow all of that was one stream of music. And then along the way, uh, you know, I was, I was a diehard Led Zeppelin kid and, you know, transcribing Jimmy Page licks uh, in my bedroom with the electric guitar and, you know, the, the way that teenage kids do. Sure. So do you see any influence from the classic rock in your compositions today? Actually, in a way, yes. Um, I think that part of how you form your voice as a composer is to be honest about what you love. And I love a lot of that music that I grew up listening to. And I, I, I feel kind of boundary agnostic about the difference between art music and folk music or rock music or whatever it's all just sound it's just all vibrations and in a in a piece that i think we'll listen to later um or maybe not no 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 there's a there's a there's a six-part madrigal that i wrote for the Gisualdo six called uh the blue bird and on the note blue uh on the word blue i quote the opening melisma of Joni Mitchell's song blue in interior voices in a way that I, in a way that I think is completely uh it's it would be hard to pick out but 
that kind of influence is all over the place. I'm working on an even song cycle right now for a, a chamber choir. And, uh, you know, little do they know that there's Billy Joel all throughout just because I, <laughs> I recently transcribed the whole album of the, the Nylon Curtain. And there's some really genius harmonic moves on that album. And I, I fully intend to steal them. So, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And it all it all contributes to whatever my voice is. Sure. So after graduating from BYU, your graduate studies took you far afield from Utah. Paris, France, Boston, and Bristol, England. So why such extensive travels? Were there particular teachers you were hoping to study with or just trying to see different perspectives and composition? What, what were you going for? Uh, part of it is uh, I was chasing my wife all over. My wife, <laughs> I, I got married. Uh, my, my wife and I met in music school. Her name's Liz, and she's a terrific cellist, a really, really gifted, um, intuitive musician who she plays beautifully and has good technical training from the sort of the classical side of things but um is has this sort of omnivorous interest in folk and celtic and jazz and all sorts of different styles and when i was finishing at byu uh we were dating and she mentioned to me oh by the way i I've applied to transfer to the Berkeley College of Music and I'm going to Boston. You want to come? And so <laughs> we we ended up spending a couple of years in Boston and then moved from there to Ireland. Actually, she had a Fulbright fellowship to do a musicology project in the west of Ireland, um, studying um, Irish music on the cello and then to the Midwest and then to Utah and back to Boston. And uh, I th think that she and I have a similar openness to experience and curiosity be about the world and there's just so many interesting places and we you know why not see a few of them along the way that and uh the places that i've studied and the people i've studied with have been have been kind of deliberate because i've i've wanted to absorb particular things from particular people sure you know for me uh composing started as a hobby I didn't study it in school like you did. So I'm curious, was there a moment in your life when you sort of realized I am a composer? Was there a benchmark you were trying to reach, a first performance or a first publication? What was it? Well, it's interesting you say that because I thought a lot about it that when I was a kid and I didn't know any better, I was writing music constantly. You know, when I, when I, even when I was just barely starting to play the piano, my mom's a proficient pianist and a good flute teacher. And I would, I remember lying on the floor in our apartment and I would draw circles on staff paper and hand it to her and ask her to play my compositions. And I never thought more, I, I never thought so deeply about, you know, like, am I a composer or not? I just was one from the time I was really little. Uh -huh. And that was true throughout my teenage years too. There was just this kind of like effortless, innate creativity that I just, I believed in because it's just there. And then the curious thing happens where you go to college and they, you know, in music school, they obsess over the composers with a capital C who've spent all their lives accumulating these degrees so they can write the capital C compositions and then the other people who clearly couldn't be composers 
even if they tried writing music. And what was funny is that when I was an undergrad, I wasn't a composition major. I was a, I was, it was called media music studies, which is effectively a, effectively a commercial music degree. And I kind of fell sideways into the school of music through a, a neighbor friend, this older guy who was in charge of the commercial music program. And he, he heard me playing music and he said, gee, Andrew, you'd kind of do a lot of music. You do it pretty well. Have you ever thought about being a music major? And by that point, I was bumbling around campus taking Chinese and economics and all this <laughs> other stuff. And I thought, wow, a music major. I didn't know I could do that. And so I, I fell in sort of, I fell in kind of sideways. And that was the moment when I stopped believing I was a composer. Ironically, it was with a minute that I walked into the school of music because the, not to obsess about the, the specifics, but there's this you know, it's like you have to be bestowed the mantle of the capital C composers to be one. And I was like, oh, I'm not, I guess I'm not one of those. The irony was I was writing piles of music. I was arranging for people's album projects. I was collaborating with everybody. I was writing choral music. And I came out of an under out of the undergrad with I think killer ears and pretty good chops and absolutely no self confidence as a composer because they had systematically destroyed it and I don't say they do that on purpose it's right. just a byproduct of this very peculiar academic system and so but because I still loved it the way that I did when I was a little kid I just kept writing music and eventually I'd written enough of it. Uh, that, and some of it was good enough that choral directors started programming it and some of it got recorded. And after a while, there were enough people out there, in quotes, out there, whatever that means, sure. they thought I was a composer with a capital C. And then I had to look at myself at some point and say, oh, maybe I am. <laughs> it took a very long time. It came, I'd say there was a hand, a couple major steps, a couple stages where after I'd written a stack of pieces on texts by Wendell Berry, who's just one of my literary heroes, I just love his work and felt drawn to writing music on those texts. I showed some of those pieces to Philip Brunel when I was living in the Midwest at Vocal Essence. And he looked at them and said, these are very nice pieces. And my jaw just about hit the floor because I thought, you mean the ones that I wrote? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then those same pieces with a few others added to them, I showed them to Peter Rutenberg in LA. And he said, oh, these are, these are well-constructed. And I thought, oh, you're kidding. These ones that I wrote are well-constructed. And then eventually Brady Allred and the Salt Lake vocal artists recorded an entire album of these things. And... I ended up selling 3000 copies of that album out of my garage. And that was a big step. And then the other big step, honestly, still, even despite, even despite those uh, kind of first base successes or something like that, I still didn't have a, any sense of self as a composer. I think it takes, it took a long time for me to, to work through the unintended damage that the undergrad ex experience caused. Um, and but what happened though is a friend of mine went to USC for a, a choral conducting DMA program. And I knew that he knew Joe Michael Scheibe. And I was aware that Dr. Scheibe had a 
you know, multiple series. I'd seen his name and I kind of got up the guts to ask my friend for an introduction. He was kind enough to facilitate an introduction and Dr. Scheibe uh, looked at the stack of pieces and he, he kind of flipped through them and pulled out two right away. And he said, oh, oh yeah, these ones. And those are, and they're published on his series. And I think the, a handful of those experience put together finally gave me the guts to look at myself in the mirror and say, I'm a composer. That's awesome. So we will get a chance to talk more about Wendell Berry when we listen to your music a little bit later. Uh, but I did want to talk about a, another project that I saw on your website uh, that I was really fascinated by. And that was They All Saw a Cat, based on the children's book picture book by Brendan Wenzel. This piece follows the grand tradition of Peter and the Wolf with orchestra and narrator. Can you tell us more about this creation of what you call a 12-minute romp for orchestra? Yeah, so, you know, it's funny because I remember, I do remember going to orchestra concerts with my mom when I was a kid. I really mm -hmm. do. And some of the most significant musical experiences that I've had in my life the ones that weren't choral were orchestral. Those are, it's something about the, the, the phenomenon of having a lot of people doing something really special together that you can't do on your own. That just is, it, it electrifies me. I remember when I was a teenager, just about exploding out of my chair at the end of the Bartok concerto, concerto for orchestra and just thinking, what is this? <laughs> You know, if if humans have done anything right, this is an example. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I've always loved the orchestra and I love, uh, you know, I love serious, serious concert music. I love symphonies. I love concerti. Uh, I love all the right answers for those kinds of things. But I also love fun stuff. I love silly things. I have a silly sense of humor. Um I don't know if that comes through for people who don't know me very well, but my family knows that I have a silly, silly sense of humor. And I have two kids right now. They're seven and nine. But um, a couple of years ago, when I thought up this project, uh, they were what, like two and four or three and five, something like that. And we live in a tornado of Legos and children's <laughs> books and constant chaos. And I wanted to write a piece that reflected the, the joy of that. And I came across this book. They all saw a cat. It was recommended to me by a children's librarian named Rachel, wonderful person. And it's a gorgeous book. And I wrote to the author and asked permission to turn it into an orchestral stage work where the orchestra plays music the narrator narrates the book and the art from the book is displayed over the orchestra on a projection screen. And it turned out so great. That piece has been, I, I was the narrator for the, the, uh, a, a couple performances, uh, one with the Emporia Symphony Orchestra in Kansas and another with the BYU Philharmonic for their, it's designed for their family and youth outreach concerts and the book is lovely. I hope that people who hear this uh, pick up a copy of the book and read it because it's this great example of learning how to see through other people's eyes and take perspectives and change your opinion and, and 
think generously and creatively about other people and in this case about animals, which is, which is kind of a safe way to, to learn how to do that. And it's very fun because all the kids in the audience are making all the animal noises and flapping their bird arms. And <laughs> it is supposed to be ruckus and silly and loud and fun. And I think that everybody, all of the people that have sat there in the audience and enjoyed the story have also enjoyed the orchestral experience also, which makes me really happy. That's awesome. All right, so I got one more question for you uh, that I like to ask to all my composers. Uh, what do you do when you're not musicking? Do you have any hobbies? What do you like to do? Well, first thing that comes to mind is I am a dad. Uh, that is a 24-7 kind of hobby. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it is pedal to the metal all the time. Today, I was shuttling one kid to and from swimming and the other kid to and from rock climbing and uh help we just helped one our older son prepare for auditions for a play he's really into theater and so you know like any parent i'm i'm excited about those those parts of my life um i'm a reader and i just i just love ingesting books and i always buy more books than i read and my wife thinks that's <laughs> weird uh, but I can't stop, so I don't. And um, I also, you know, I, I say that I like to hike, but and and do things like that. But I just don't do it very much because we're <laughs> we're in the the tornado of kidland at the moment. Right. All right. Well, after we take a quick break here, we're going to come back and listen to some of Andrew's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Andrew Maxfield. So let's start today with Invitation to Love. This piece is for a cappella chorus, bass, baritone, two tenors, and two countertenors. In your description of the piece on your website, you said you attempted to set the text in music colored in golden yellows and soft grays. So what musical gestures or textures did you use to help you achieve that color image? Mm. Well, those color references come from the text itself mm -hmm. it's a it's a really gentle um text and has these lovely um images in it talks about honey and uh gold and yellow and all this kind of stuff and so to me that that evoked certain kinds of timbres a uh, gentleness in the singing uh, certain kinds of harmonies that sounded relatively warm and lush to me, um, as opposed to the other piece that the Giswaldo Six recorded, which is called The Blue Bird. And there I really tried to evoke these kind of um, cooler, tenser, bluer tones, mm -hmm. so to speak. I mean, it's kind of funny to talk about music in terms of color, but yeah. you know, everything, almost everything we talk about in music is based in metaphor anyway. So, right. so there you go. <laughs> so what do you think this text says that you think will resonate with audiences today? Um, I think it's a very accessible text and it's an invitation as the title says, and the word come, 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 come to me is this repeated invitation, this imperative that feels very inviting. And I think it talks really about the human 
need and to be loved and the desire to be loved and to love in return, um, which I think is, you know, as evergreen as any topic can be. Sure. Well, we are going to take a moment here and listen to Invitation to Love, performed here by the Jeswaldo Six, Owain Park Director.
So let's turn next to the singing bowl. First of all, what is a singing bowl, and how do we become an open singing bowl? <laughs> okay, so a singing bowl literally is the the little metal, the metallic bowl. We think of them as Tibetan instruments. Mm -hmm. and if you, you can tap the side of it with a little wooden beater and get kind of a ding, or if you if you gently run the wooden beater around the edge, the bowl will start to start to speak in kind of this interesting open sounding resonant hum. And it has a really beautiful, pure sound that's kind of decorated with these concentric rings of overtones. And uh, a lot of people um, use these kinds of singing bowls in meditative traditions. And they're used sometimes for effect. Uh, all, all, they're kind of like these crystal bowls and things like that that you get in effect for choral music. Um, but the text is by a, um, a poet priest in the UK named Malcolm Geit. And it's an invitation to be like a singing bowl, which uh -huh. is sort of open on the inside, um, maybe resonant with uh, truth and beauty in, in sort of a quiet but pure way. And he um, says, begin the song exactly where you are. And I, I just think it's a, it's a beautiful text. It's a sonnet. Uh, it's, it's in iambic pentameter, which is interesting when you're setting it in music. But uh, yeah, there you go. So the singing bowl. Awesome. And this, this is the piece that won the King Singer's New Music Prize, correct? Right. So I, I received a special juried commendation in the King Singer's New Music Prize in the SATB category for this piece. Did, did they perform this or anything like that? Uh, this, it, this has been performed, but not uh, in conjunction with the prize. Uh, okay. it, this has been performed and recorded by Sound of Ages, which is a really, really phenomenal chamber choir. Speaking of which, let's listen to the Sound of Ages performing the Singing Bowl, directed here by Cameron Cavanaugh. <laughs>
let's turn next to For the Future. So this is one of your pieces based on the poetry of Wendell Berry that you mentioned earlier. Uh, you open this piece with music reminiscent of Appalachian shape note singing, but it quickly opens into a much more modern sound and fuller harmonies. For a piece called For the Future, the callback to the past seems like an interesting choice. So what was your aim with this composition? Well, people who know Wendell Berry as an author and know what he writes about know that he's from Kentucky, that his home place is absolutely central to everything that he writes and thinks about. And one of his purposes really as a writer is to call our, our attention to our home places and to, uh, to swing the pendulum away, away from this kind of modern aimless mobility, sort of very surface level materialistic dwelling back to um, something like a more harmonious uh, relationship with our ag agrarian roots with the places that we depend on. And so when I set this text and all of the texts from the album called Celebrating Wendell Berry and Music, um, Kentucky was on my mind. And I spent time in the book called The Kentucky Harmony, which is a cousin to the Sacred Harp, mm -hmm. and thought a lot about the that those traditions and it's it's i don't know it's it's interesting because i think on the one hand it, it can sound a little pastiche or a little bit sort of knock off to borrow from that material um on the other hand i wanted to evoke the place if you listen to barry speak he has a he has this elegant kentucky drawl he is completely from his home place and i wanted the music to reflect that so there's fiddle in the piece, mm -hmm. uh, there's cello in the piece, uh, and the fiddle hovers somewhere between bona fide Appalachian playing and what I would describe as kind of the new grass, neo trad stuff that you hear in and around Boston and in the folk music circuit. And in the same way, the the vocal music starts closer to something that sounds like the Kentucky Harmony, but as you say, then it it sort of arrives in. Uh, a more modern space harmonically and gesturally mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah. And I, I think what I mean by that is that the, the text has maybe evergreen roots, the met, the it's, it's in the ground, the way that Barry is, but, but it's relevant and modern at the same time. So I, I tried to play both sides. All right. Well, we are going to listen to a performance of for the future performed here by the USC Thornton chamber singers, Dr. Joe Michael Scheibe director. Oh, I should add that version has piano accompaniment. So, <laughs> people so don't who, listen people, for the fiddle. Don't listen for the fiddle. Uh, they took that one on tour to Eastern Europe and they only had a piano player. So uh, if you like the song, you can find, just Google it. You can find another version that has, that has the go. fiddle. Oh. 
All right, lastly today, we are going to talk about one household high and low. So for this Wendell Berry text, you went full into the sacred harp singing tradition. For those not familiar with the singing style, can you explain it a little bit and prepare them for what we're about to hear? Yeah, I so I love the sacred harp tradition. And I've got my copy of the sacred harp on my shelf over here. And I've been to sacred harp singings. Oh, and nice. To, I mean, to, to generalize, but do a little uh, time travel here. Um, you know, in the, in the frontier times in America, particularly in the Appalachian area, um, there was a move to make music, church music, accessible to the people. You know, if you think about the rarefied tradition that came out of uh, the, the Lutheran Bach tradition, where we have these strict part writing principles and the, uh, the counter, you know, rules of counterpoint that I, that I've spent a lot of time studying and that I love <laughs> deeply. Um, but to the extent that there, the, that, that music had become sort of rarefied and specialized, there was a pushback against that uh, for good reason, which is, yeah, if we all had music degrees, we could do that. But what about real people who just want to sing from the heart? Right. And so there were, there were a lot of different kinds of efforts made to simplify um, systems of music teaching and music learning to make music the people's um, art. And the shape notes were this curious, um, some people call it fossil law singing, these curious interlocking, um, I, well, let's not get bogged down details. These sort of curious, curious scales, primarily pentatonic scales that were, and instead of having round note heads, they had shape note heads. And the idea was, well, if, if you can't read the notes going up and down on the five note, on the five line staff, you can interpret the shapes to know which of the pitches from a solemnized scale you're supposed to sing. Irony is that those shapes are still on the five lines and uh, you still read them going up and down. But, but the point is that not only did they have a different system for teaching and learning, they also wanted their own sound, their own music. And, uh, and they wanted it to be free of the shackles of these sort of strict notions of major and minor. Uh, you know, it wasn't so much, you know, major didn't mean happy and minor didn't mean sad. Uh, minor music can be joyful. And um, they sang based on sort of linear coherence where every line was interesting. And whether, you know, you put the lines together and it adds up to properly spaced and weighted triads in the, you know, high Baroque tradition, nobody <laughs> cared. It's like the question is, is it singable? Is it interesting? Does it sound good? And does it move, you know, are you moved by the Holy Spirit? Anyway, you put all that together and you have this, this wonderful kind of um, cavalier cowboy counterpoint um, and it's still alive and well. It's still this exciting, vibrant tradition that a lot of people care about and a lot of people um, join these singings and, and uh, there's a lot of people more, more knowledgeable and devoted than I am, but point is I love this stuff and in the same way that for the future was grounded in the Kentucky harmony this piece called uh one household high and low that's actually 
the title that I use for the piece is taken from the text. I, um, I think it just has a, a, a numbered title, but it's when you read the text, it's come, let us gather here together. It sounded, when I saw it on the page, I just thought, thought oh, this is, you know, maybe it's not a sacred call to worship, but it's sort of like a secular call to commune, you know, call to communion with your, your fellow humans. Uh-huh. I, and I, I loved that invitation to come together, to belong to one another. Um, and it, from the minute I saw that word come, I just heard this come, come, this like intoning of the beginning of a uh, sacred harp song. And so this one really is, as you said, full on sacred, sacred harp. And this is me nodding my, or sort of tipping my hat in, in genuine heartfelt appreciation to the tradition that I, I, I really love and admire. That's fabulous. All right, well, we are going to listen to Andrew Maxfield's One Household High and Low with text by Wendell Berry, performed here by the Salt Lake vocal artists with Dr. Brady Allred, conductor. What are you working on now that you can tell us about? Um, I'm always working on things. Um, I'm writing another orchestral piece right now. Score and parts are due very soon. (laughs) And I'm only sweating a little bit because of that deadline. Uh, And I will say that it is a piece that's kind of like they all saw a cat. It's another piece for young audiences um, that I think... I hope will become very popular in the in that that part of the orchestral repertoire. I am then, as soon as I finish that, uh, before the dust settles, I'm writing a um, another installment of a flute sonata called Bouquet. It's a it's what I call an open commission. 
where uh, flutists can commission new mi micro movements uh, at any time. And then everybody who has participated in previous uh, rounds of the commission get the up the new movements. Each of, the, each of the movements is based on a flower and you put the flowers together and however you want to in the bouquet when you perform it. And that has been successful and very fun. And so this installment is commissioned by a flutist in Finland who leads the Tampere Flute Festival. Uh, and it'll be premiered there. And then I'm writing an Evensong service for Hillsdale College Chamber Choir. And then, and that should get me through the end of middle of April. And then I have a choral music project that I'm very excited about that's, that I'll probably talk about at a later time and another orchestral work and a handful of kind of one-off um, choral commissions for different groups here. Very cool. So it sounds like you're staying pretty busy. So where can my listeners learn more about you? What's your website, social media, that sort of stuff? I'm easy to find andrewmaxfield.org and uh, also easy to find on Facebook and Instagram. All right. Well, hey, listeners out there, let your friends and neighbors know that you love movable dough by sporting a t-shirt or hoodie with the movable dough logo on it. Visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough and click on the merch link and you'll be taken to TeePublic where you can get the movable dough logo on just about anything you want. Face mask? Check. Baby onesie? Check. Notebook, mug, pillow, check, check, and check. That's sdcompose.com slash movable dough and click on the merch link. Well, Andrew Maxfield, it has been a joy to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. My guest today was composer Andrew Maxfield. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.